When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Kill Global Coaching and Consulting. Go to KILNGlobalCoaching.com when you're ready to bake success into work and life. Now for the next episode of Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, president and CEO of the St. John Consulting Group, Connie St. John. Hey, what you drink? Okay, so I am back at it, and this is a conversation that a really good friend of mine said that I need to meet a really good friend of hers, and I, I feel obligated, right? It's like, what am, what am I going to do when there is a conspiracy in the universe for me to meet this person? And I did a little, I did a, just like a 15-second like scour of the internet. Oh my gosh. We are in for a treat because Miss Connie St. John is absolutely the real thing. And I've got her here tonight. Whiskey, jazz, and leadership. Connie, welcome to the show. Come on in. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited about this evening. I can hardly wait to get to know you too. Well, let's let's do this. Let's do this because I feel I feel like I already know you because you you are doing so many amazing things, and you know we we do have a lot of commonalities and mutual friends as well. So l- let's jump in because I've got a couple of really really important questions to make sure that I ask. But the first question, and this is the question that really kind of wakes up the the listeners, so it's really really important. What you drinking? So what I am drinking tonight is a lavender margarita. I went to a Cuban restaurant this weekend. A friend of mine was visiting from Michigan. So we sit down and there's this this other couple of best girlfriends next to us. We said, what are they drinking? And she said, they're drinking a lavender margarita. Neither one of us had ever tasted one or heard of it. But we got one and we got a picture. So it came home with me. She's back in Michigan. I still have the lavender margarita, and it's quite delicious. I, I think I think that was a good decision. That sounds like a good decision. Well, I, I I understand, and I know that you are a cocktail kind of lady, and so for the first, this is a first. This is a first on whiskey, jazz, and leadership because usually 
I sample my whiskeys neat here on the show. Occasionally, I will do them over the rocks, depending upon the mood. I have never done a cocktail, but I know that you are a cocktail kind of lady. So I am going to do one of my favorite cocktails because it combines two of my favorite beverages. It's actually a rusty nail because it combines Old Forester's whiskey. And I'm going to go with the single barrel here because this one looks like it's it's had better days. So I might as well just go ahead and do, send it out the right way. And then Drambouille liqueur. And so I'm just going to go ahead and, and I don't really do cocktails on the show, but I've just got a great feeling about this conversation. So we're going to go with the rusty nail. So here we go. And we're going to add the, and you're supposed to, okay, so you're supposed to pour this over a lot of ice. And so I've got this in here and it, yeah, they, they are getting to know each other. And so as these two amazing beverages get to know each other, I would love to just get to know you a little better. So as I enjoy this, please share just a little bit about your background and tap into some of the amazing things that I've already learned about you that suggest that this is going to be a kindred spirit type conversation. Oh, wow. So, you know, just listening to your podcast, there are so many things I would say that make us kindred spirit. So it's hard to decide what to talk about exactly. But I feel like I have a very blessed background because I've done a lot of amazing things that people say, how did you get to do that? So um, I've lived all over the country, born in Buffalo, raised in Detroit, went to high school in California, and then lived in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, then back to Cali, then Atlanta, Chicago, back to Cali, and now back to D.C. And I forgot New York City. So I have done a lot of moving. And I've gotten to do a lot of wonderful things. I have an entertainment background. I worked for Columbia TriStar Television, Sony Television in Los Angeles. I worked for Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta. I worked for Oprah in Chicago. And then I also have a big corporate background. I also worked for Sara Lee Corporation and Public Responsibility, which it, which is issues of concern to women and minorities. And that really kicked off my career in a different way. So the entertainment business kicked off my career in one way. And then working with public responsibility, issues of concern to women and minorities, that also let me know that the work that I do has meaning and that I could change lives by the work that I do. So now I have my own companies. One is a production company, No Weapon Productions, where I do film stage, television, live events. We do Change Your Life Entertainment. And then I have a consulting company where I work with cultural influencers. And that means other media influencers. It means pastors. It means Fortune 50 CEOs. It means art schools. So I work with influencers to do leadership development and um, employee engagement, sometimes branding or strategic planning. And so that is what I do and what I've done. Oh my gosh. So there there are so many connections. And you know, we're gonna get into the conversation about leadership development and our corporate experiences because there's a lot of commonality there. One item that I don't talk about as much anymore, but you have absolutely opened the door 
is I have lived in 14 states and 19 cities. And I usually don't see or meet anyone who has moved as much as I have until now. <laughs> I lost track. I mean, you might be you might be approaching that 14 states, 19 cities. Uh, so my question is, what do you believe that having lived so many places has added to the work that you do now? I would say, first and foremost, living in Atlanta and working for Turner, and then living in Chicago and working for Oprah, showed me that you can have an entertainment empire regardless of where you are, because the entertainment business would have you think you can only do it living in LA and New York. And so for me, what I learned was that it doesn't matter where you are when you decide that you're going to do what you're going to do. You can do it wherever. You can create an empire where you are. You can you can do the business that you love wherever you are. And I also, you know, it, it taught me to, to, to live where you love. And I love D.C. It's my favorite of all the places I've lived. D.C. is my favorite because you have your finger on the pulse of the world when you live here. Your local news is the world's news. And if you say something random like, you know what, I think I want to end homelessness. Somebody's like, oh, you know what, let me introduce you to the secretary. <laughs> you don't get that anywhere. Not anywhere else like you do in D.C. They are about purpose here. And I'm about purpose. So this felt like home the first time I came here. So, Wow. wow. That, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, just to be around so many people. I love the way you said the people of purpose people of action uh one of the one of the running jokes in my family is you got to be really really careful if you mention something because we'll have a four point plan and some action steps in place before the conversation's over if you're just if you're just chatting you got to let us know up front <laughs> hey i'm just i'm just you know pontificating here <laughs> i love that yeah. and, and you know it's so different i lived in california longer than any place else i've lived and it's not my favorite place to live and, you know, their local news is, you know, Britney Spears is at the you know, grocery store. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> and here it's, oh, well, you know, the they know every ambassador's name. They know every head of state, you know, all the country leaders. Completely different experience living here. It's so amazing. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I have uh, I have often said that, especially when I go on vacation, uh, because I'm in Missouri right now, so I don't get this as much in an every uh, in an everyday experience uh, like I would like. But when I go on vacation, I love walking down the street and not necessarily being able to understand what everyone is saying around me. I, I love that. I wonder what they're talking about. Or you know, there was a time when I knew just enough Spanish to impress a high school Spanish teacher. But let's vacation in Spain, right? And and I I love being able to know some of what's going on, but not all of it, and then and then having to figure it out. And I, I don't know if that's just unique to me. I suspect that it's not, but uh, I meet so many people that like their four blocks and they've never really gone beyond their four blocks. And they've got deep roots, but you know, if you talk about what's happening six blocks away, it's like a whole nother country. I am familiar with it. I don't fully understand it. I'll be honest with you. But I same. I know people who have never left their their neighborhood. They've lived there all their lives, and 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 I can appreciate their simplicity of life. That I know what I'm going to get. I know what it is. I get that. I'm not that. <laughs> That's not me. 
Hey, I, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Another thing I'm curious, because you've worked for some pretty significant broadcasting organizations, and some might say that that's where you got a lot of your uh, a lot of your ground training, a lot of your foundational training for the work that you're doing now. Is there a difference between working for Turner and working for Oprah and working for some of the other uh, organizations that you work for, or is the kind of work that you do is the same, just the the label on the station head, stationary changes? Well, the work I did was different. I mean, I, I did publicity and marketing and those organizations, but but the organizations themselves were different. I did get a lot of my training. By the time I got to Oprah, I'd already gotten a lot of my training, but my first training came when I lived in DC the first time and I was a convention planner. And I worked for the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, so a different type of celebrity. That is where my career first began, producing events and developing a level of confidence in being able to talk to anybody. That started at Trial Lawyers. It didn't start in entertainment. By the time I left here and moved to California to go work at Columbia Pictures Television, which then merged with TriStar, I already had that piece that it didn't matter who I wasn't starstruck. I could, you know, talk to anyone, whether it was the president of the company or, you know, some celebrity that somebody thought was going to, you know, be overwhelming. That didn't move me. And I never wanted to to be considered just a fan when I dealt with people. So some of the other people in the publicity department, every time they were around one of the actors of a show they represented. Oh, can we take a picture together? Can we take a picture together? And I thought, now you just went from peer to fan. And so I never asked anyone for a picture, not ever, ever. And so we had a different relationship and people that even intimidated my boss. She would say, can you just go talk to them and ask them to do so? And so absolutely, I had no fear. And that came initially from working here. And, you know, then same in, in, Atlanta with Turner Broadcasting. I moved through their divisions fairly quickly. And and, um, same thing, no fear of talking to media or talking to celebrities or talking to the president. That didn't come with entertainment. That came before the entertainment piece. What really, and it's interesting you, you mentioned this, I was on a plane just before COVID coming back from Alaska. A gentleman, and I struck up this conversation, and he asked me about my career. And just in talking to him, he realized this was when you figured out who you were and recognized that your voice had power. It wasn't any of those other jobs. My favorite job out of all of them was working at Sara Lee Corporation. Mm-hmm. And Sara Lee is a products management company, much like Kraft or Procter & Gamble. They had, you know, Coach and Haynes and all of those things, not just baked goods. And so this one evening I'd been invited, I was one of 20 people invited to the South African ambassador's residence here in DC for dinner. And he wanted to know what to do about education. So we sat and we talked, the 20 of us. And afterwards he asked me and Dr. Dorothy Height, who started the National Council of Negro Women. He asked us both, if you two could please remain after, I'd like what you said at dinner and I'd like to continue this conversation. Mm. It was in those moments, that moment right there. And there was a second one when I met at the time, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Mm. And they said, 
oh, secretary, this is somebody you need to know. This is Connie St. John. I'm thinking, wait a second. I think you got that backwards. You mean, <laughs> Connie, this is somebody you need to know. It's the secretary of state. But, you know, that's when I learned corporate rules at all. Don't mm. think that politics rules corporate. It does not. But to have, you know, her be introduced to me as somebody she needed to know or sitting with that South African ambassador who said, I'm going to take these ideas back to my country and mm. implement them. Really? Really? My little ideas? I just thought I was just like you said, pontificate. We're just we're just chatting. I wasn't you know, <laughs> didn't know you were going to take it back and implement it. See, now, I mean, that's a really, really important element. You know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot on these episodes is just my firm belief that there is a strong connection between leadership and courage and not courage necessarily from the standpoint of I'm going to run up the hill and take out, you know, all the bullets are going to bounce off my chest, but but just really the courage, the commitment to do what you think is right, to say what you think is right, regardless of the personal implications. And one of my conversations was with Angie Flynn McIver, who is a communications expert. And she talked a lot about the courage to just really speak your mind and to own your space. And that sounds so much like the story that you just shared. I mean, you you weren't necessarily presenting. You, you weren't trying to impress. You were just owning your space, having a conversation. And who knows how that, that one conversation has impacted people in a country that you may never ever, <laughs> you may never ever meet or visit. But because you had the courage to own your space and be in your clothes and your skin, you've had a, a, an incredible impact. Tell me a little bit about where did that courage come from? Because I, I think a lot of people have a tendency to get starstruck and and be overly impressed. I, I'll tell you, if I see Madeline Albright, that I, I'm going to pause a little bit. Well, this goes back further than Galen. So just so you know, somebody asked me, you know, Connie, what haven't you done? And there was a woman, I ran a music school just before returning back to DC this time. And there was a parent there who said, how did you know you could do all those things? And I said, why would I think I couldn't? Like, mm. why is the default me thinking I couldn't do those things? Why isn't the default? Of course I can. So I will say this, and it didn't come immediate. It was in phases. But when I was born, I was born with a spinal deformity and I didn't know. My parents didn't know. It wasn't diagnosed until I was about nine or 10. And it was because of, you know, silly little kids in elementary school. How come you don't turn your neck all the way? And, you know, I was doing things that other kids did. I didn't know I wasn't turning all the way. I was turning all the way I could turn. And so, you know, they had to call names and whatnot until it finally got to me. My parents took me to the doctor. It turned out I had congenital, which means born with cervical fusion. So my, the bones in my neck were fused together. It caused a curve all the way down. It tried to right itself and it couldn't right itself all the way down through to my tailbone, which also wasn't formed properly. And so I had cervical fusion, scoliosis, spina bifida occulta, which means there are parts of your spine that aren't formed properly. So the doctor said, what we're going to do is just put you on muscle relaxers right now. And this is going to degenerate because I was little. So they assume the curvature in your neck will degenerate as you get older. So by the time you're 18, 
just go straight on disability. You'll never be able to play sports because of your tailbone. You'll never have children. And by the time you're 21, you'll probably be in a wheelchair. So go ahead and take these muscle relaxers and we'll go from there. And I said, well, how often, for how long do I have to take these muscle relaxers? And he said, for the rest of your life. Now, keep in mind, I'm nine or 10. And I said, well, wouldn't that make me a drug addict if I just took these pills for the rest of my life? And he just looked at me and I decided right in that moment, that's not going to be my end. They told me everything I could not do. Mm. And I decided I have no nothing to lose trying anything because I'm not supposed to be able to do anything. I may as well try it all. I want to be a teacher. I was a teacher. I wanted to be a flight attendant. I didn't really want to be a flight attendant. I just want to travel. But I was a flight attendant and you have to lift things to be able to be a flight attendant. I wanted to work in entertainment. I worked in entertainment. I wanted to travel. I traveled. I decided there is nothing that if I want to try it, that I won't try because I've got nothing to lose. They, they wrote me off from single digits. So the courage, and first I was shy, had to work through my shyness. I don't have that issue anymore. But like I said, it came in phases. But in terms of the what gave me the boldness or the courage, I always felt like, why not? Who said I can't? And so I tried it. Whatever it was, I decided to try it. Wow. That, I mean, if that doesn't bring to life the words of William Shakespeare when he said, boldness be my friend, I don't know what does. Uh, you know, And it really causes me to wonder... You know, we're born, I believe, we are born with this idea of being limitless and that anything that I fancy myself to want to do, I can do. And, you know, there are all kinds of studies about how children have to be taught to be afraid because if not, I'll just climb the tree because the tree's there and, oh my God, there's another branch, let's go. Right, and jump off the roof, I can fly. Exactly, exactly. What do you think it is that causes well-meaning adults to want to keep kids safe, but put limits on their dreams? Because it's one thing to keep kids safe, you know, jumping off the roof might not be a good idea, but to put limits on their dreams, where, where do you think that that, that that goes awry? It comes from their own insecurities, their own failures their own limitations. Maybe they had a parent that said, you know, you'll never be able to do this because I didn't do it or you're not smart enough. I've heard of parents telling their kids they're not pretty enough. They're not, they don't speak well enough. If you just were taller, if you were shorter, if you were thinner, and they put their own limitations on their children. And since children are sponges, they believe it. Mm. They believe it. And you hear this more in Black families, to be honest with you. Children should be seen and not heard. Mm. Even that says your voice doesn't count. And so if you think of things like that, where, you know, quiet, the adults are talking, just the way, sure, you can teach respect, but you can do it in a way that doesn't diminish the child at the same time. So I think even bullying, it, it starts often in the home of this is somebody I can control. This is somebody that it's my job to control. I have a relative who says to his kids who are now grown, let me do your thinking for you. Mm. And if I do your thinking for you, then you won't ever make mistakes. But what he's done, of course, is kept them from developing 
their own mind or their own sense of reasoning, their own sense of confidence in their ability to reason. It comes from limitations, sometimes arrogance. In his case, it comes from arrogance. Ah, that is so, oh, that is, you know, if, if, if I think about all the clients that I have right now and, and the issues that these executives might be working through, usually at the core, it's some, it's some story that they've carried with them since a very, very young age that they possibly haven't even evaluated. They've just taken it as this is the way the world works. This is the, this is the way I'm supposed to operate. And this idea of giving people, giving kids the ability to learn about the world, but more importantly, learn about themselves and have confidence that they can trust themselves. That is a big lesson that I'm, I'm, I'm having to learn as a parent my daughter. We've known each other for 20 minutes. I think it's enough time for me to talk about my daughter now. <laughs> uh, but my daughter, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, math, science, art. I mean, she's the whole package. And uh, right now she is in her freshman year at Spelman College. Great institution. I've got a lot of friends that have been there, a lot of alumni that have graduated from there. So academically, I've got no concern whatsoever. But my concern is that she's eight hours away. You know, I can't swoop in to fix things <laughs> that I usually could when she was living here. And that's probably the best thing for her because more important than anything that she might learn as a biochemistry major, I, I really want her to learn that she can trust herself. And like you said, with you know, the executive that you were, that you worked with, if we're going to do our, the thinking for our kids, then that robs them of the opportunity to learn confidence in themselves. There is no way they could sit across the table from Madeline Albright if they're waiting for dad to come in and, and tell them everything to say. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So my child is 22 and my goal with them was they go by they, them. So I'll they, them for tonight. My goal for them was to give them all the tools they needed to be an adult. And um, so when they got to high school, um, I got them a checking account. They had to manage their checking account. It never went under. When they turned 10, they got a watch, a wallet, a key to the house, and an alarm clock to get themselves up. And teaching them, my goal was, you know, teach them how to cook, teach them how to do laundry teach them how to drive, teach them how to read maps, do all the things. In their last year of high school, one of the things that happened was they would say to me, well, first, when they were going through driver's training, they would say, do you think I would have passed my test today the way I drove today? And I would give them tips. Then when they got ready to graduate high school, do you feel like I have everything I need to know to be an adult? I mean, it was unbelievable and really heartwarming for me. I was living in California. They went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. So I get that whole moment of eight hours away and it was way, it was eight hours of flying away. And so, but I will tell you how many, there were so many times when I got a call, do you know none of my roommates know how to wash clothes? I've had to train everybody on my floor how to wash clothes or they're not managing their money well. And so my child worked and did all of these things. and. Just complete difference, just a complete difference. They're living on their own in Minneapolis right now. 
And I'm so proud of them. They have their own apartment. They have their own jobs, their own money. And what we don't realize is that if we don't teach them how while they're still with us, then we've crippled them for when they're out. Mm. I'm, I'm so proud of my baby. You know, they're doing great. They're doing great. Uh, we talk every day. Um, we text every day between the two, you know, and we have a good relationship. They they are adulting well and they have they had bumps and bruises. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I told my child and, and you may have done the same. I said, believe it or not, adults are all making it up as they go along as well. There is no handbook that tells us exactly how to do it and that if we do it that way, we'll get it right. We learn from experience. If we're smart, we learn from other people's experience as well. But we try something and if it doesn't work, we try something else. So, and at first that scared them half to death. Like we're all just out here floating, bumping into each other. That's terrifying. And I said, no, 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 it could be terrifying, but you come to the table with talent, with intelligence, with beauty, with integrity, with, you know, strong character. So you're not just bumping like other people are. You've got, you've got an arsenal of, of great things helping you along. And so now they're not as terrified by it because they see that they're realizing like you're older than me and you really don't know how to make a good decision. Now I see what mom meant. So, you know, I think um, we do them a disservice if we don't train them and then let them try it. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that's one of the biggest skills that we can transfer and teach uh, our kids uh, because I, I've said to to my wife several times, uh, boy, the first time our daughter faces this issue, I really would like it to be a 19-year-old issue, not a 38-year-old issue. Because at 38, it just there's a lot more seasoning to, to the problem. It could be the exact same problem, but boy, it's got a whole lot more layers. You know, one of the things that I've gotten into, and I want to get your get your thoughts on this because your 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 work reflects a perspective. I've gotten into in some of the DEI work that I've just gotten into. I'm certainly not as seasoned in that space as you are. Uh, but w- some of the work that I've gotten into, I've, I've started to introduce this growth rings model that suggests that uh, there are three, uh, actually four levels of being comfortable with the situation. And, you know, just kind of a brief overview of this model, it, it just says you go from stagnation to order to complexity to chaos. But the point is that although people think that they want order, people think that they want predictability. The point of this is that there has to be some degree of, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next. I've got confidence that I can figure this out, but there's a learning process. And so for me, that taps into you know, what I said earlier about, I, I love walking down the street and not being able to understand all the languages, right? I, I love being able to go into situations, not quite sure how this is going to turn out, right? There's some creativity that has to be at play in order to make, in order to figure this out. This whole adulting experience, quite honestly, was overrated. <laughs> this adulting thing is way overrated because to your point, no one knows what's going on. We just have to be creative as we try to figure this out. So what's your thought behind this idea that although people say they want order, they say they want predictability, but uh, you got to have some degree of 
mystery, some degree of, I wouldn't say chaos, but some degree of complexity in order to feel alive. Uh, because it seems like you've been floating in that space. Oh, man. Yeah, I kind of stay in complex and chaos together. <laughs> I would say I thought that most people wanted that. And I think that probably more than not want that. But there are people who prefer and can only function in, I would say, even stagnation. Mm -hmm. um, but order, I've met those people where, I mean, you've seen them, the, the OCD types who eat the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Any change to their routine triggers an adverse reaction. I know those people. I don't think that they're the the norm. I think that they are the exception. I think the amount of complexity or unexpected mystery varies per person. Mm -hmm. Some like a lot of it, some like just a little bit. And it's interesting because some think, just like you said, that that's what they want, just that order. And then they, they find that they're discontent and they can't put their finger on why. I will say this. Years ago, I met with the head of NBC television, and he shared with me that his team, his production team, he was head of production. He said when they're not working on a production, they create drama in the department because they have to be working on something. Wow. So if there isn't a creative project to work on, then they, they create conflict within the department. I have found that to be the case, even when it's not entertainment related. I've seen that in different departments. If there isn't enough innovation, enough of a challenge to stay focused on purpose, enough of a purpose, then you find that's when you get that interpersonal, oh, look what she's wearing today. Oh, And you're thinking, don't you have some business to take care of? I find that when there isn't enough business, enough purpose, you have people like that who are just in that general state of discontent mm. all the time because they just don't have enough purpose, enough complexity, enough chaos in their life. So they're picking at it. And when you find people like that who are always the problem in the department, always the problem at the company, typically they don't have enough work to do mm. or they're in the wrong job. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.